0: Well, those stinking scribes and Pharisees, that's what we often think of, right? When we go back to the Old Testament and we look at as some of the things the scribes and the Pharisees taught, and, and we come to the life of Christ, and, and you look at how they took those words from the Old Testament and used them for themselves, but let's be honest, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. If we go back in time and we look and see how and what they were taught, you may begin to say, you know what, they were just doing what they thought was best. Oops, like knocking things off the table. Um, got to get my spatial awareness down this morning. Uh, they, were, they were thinking, hey, they were doing what, what, they, what they knew were, was best. And so we got to step back a little bit and ask the question, have we given them that benefit of the doubt? Or do we just kind of throw them under the bus at times? Well, when Jesus walked on the scene, by that point, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, about 2,000 years ago, you had them going and telling people at the time, here's what you need to do, here's your list of do's and don'ts, and then he gave them a list to the people out there, and they said, here, you need to follow these things, and if you do these things, you will actually gain favor before God. Well, it kind of made sense. If you start to go through the Old Testament, you can see how some of those pieces came together, and you can say, oh, yeah, yeah, I see some of that. And so, by the time Jesus comes on and he starts talking to people, what you had is a classification of people who were very religious and they were doing well and they were, they were educated. They, they kind of emphasized, you know, that the academics and being taught and trained by, by certain people of the day. They were wealthy, and if you were wealthy, you were considered to be even more religious because obviously God favors the wealthy, or at least that's what they understood. And if you were healthy, well, that must be God's blessing poured upon you because obviously God only blesses those who are healthy. Or once you're healthy, then that means that God has blessed you. And so when the the religious leaders were walking around, they were telling people, hey, you're doing these good works, and you've earned favor. Before God. So it had to be really strange when Jesus walks onto the scenes and says, Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who are poor. And then he goes through a list of things that were totally countercultural for those who had grown up under the, the leading or the teaching of, of the religious leaders of that day. And then he keeps going through this, this Sermon on the Mount, as we call it today, and he keeps saying things that the Pharisees and the scribes are like, wait a minute, that's not what we had been talked about. Or, or the disciples were saying, hey, that's not what this, the Pharisees and scribes have said. They've said, blessed are the rich, blessed are the healthy, blessed are those who are confident in themselves, blessed are they. And they would go through a list of all kinds of things that they would say, these are the people who are blessed. And Jesus comes and says, no, it's the opposite. Because when you're weak, you're humble, when you're poor, when you're broken, you come to Christ looking for grace and mercy. So that has been a lot of of the message. I hope you've heard through this series as we've gone through shift, moving from what we know, this list of do's and don'ts, to maybe earn some sort of favoritism with God, to who we know, which is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who stood before those people 2,000 years ago, and the one we read about today when we open up the New Testament and we start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we can see and hear his life lived out in front of people. So, so far, we've gone through these types of things, the type of person, pursuit, and passion that is blessed or happy, and the idea of happiness here is content the way that God created us to be content, okay? I think when we define happiness, we tend to find it through our own lenses, but we need to define it the way God defines it, and that's content the way he created us to be content. Then we've talked about the importance of living out the happy life, being the lights and the salt of the earth, and going out there to tell people about that happiness. Then we've talked about who gets to define happiness, which is God, our Creator, the one who knows us inside and out. And then we've spent a little bit of time talking about some things that destroy happiness. Hatred, lust, breaking promises, and today, selfishness. Okay? None of us have an issue with that, right? In fact, I'm sure it's not too hard to convince you of this. People are selfish, and selfish is ugly. But mercy is beautiful. It's the truth. People are selfish. Now, we can look around, and we're really good at pointing out other people's selfishness, right? But when you look at the mirror, and you're staring at that person, that person's staring back at you. Are that, is that person selfish? Selfish? When you start to think through your day and and all the things you do now, I I could go home and and I could pat myself on the back and say, okay, I've spent so much time with people today, whether it's out serving them or maybe, you know, talking on the phone with them or being in the office with them, and and then I go home and there's eight other people there that I need to care for, and and I could be at the end of the day and go, oh, I, I spent all my time caring for other people. Obviously, I'm not very selfish, but that would be a lie. Because there are so many times throughout the day, I'm thinking to myself, I can't wait to get home and get in my chair and relax. It takes some me time, right? And I can't wait for, for, for the time I get to finally have some, some peace and quiet, or, or I can't wait for somebody to, to serve me, or, you know, those things, am I alone in this? Am I the only one that thinks, hey, I I have a life and I want to live it my way and and I'm constantly fighting to serve other people and care for other people? Is that a yes, I'm the only one that feels that way? Okay, (laughs) all right. Man, this is a bad morning for me. People are selfish. Selfish is ugly, but mercy is beautiful. Well, this week's question... How do you handle, or how did you handle, the last time when you got hurt by someone who was selfish? Now, let's start with just the the little minor things. You're going through Costco, maybe not all of you, but some of you are going through Costco, and you're going to that line, and you see that line that has only 10 people in it instead of 100, right? And you start to move towards it, and you're clearly ahead of that person who's coming in from the other direction, and as you're starting to move forward, that person sees you, and that person puts their head down, and they start walking faster. And they cut you off, and you know it, and you, and you think to yourself for a moment there, well, I'm going to go a little faster. And so you do, and you push through, and you knock them over, and, no, I'm just kidding, you don't really do that. Maybe, but, but for a moment, you do? Is that what you said? Okay. Okay. But maybe for a moment, you're thinking that's, that's the proper way to handle it, Right? And maybe we do that when we're driving down the freeway. Maybe we do that in other areas of life, where somebody's going to cut in, step on us. So we try to cut them off first. How did you handle the last time when you got hurt by someone who was selfish? Well, that will be the challenge, I think, as we move through this passage. Because as we go through it, Jesus is going to challenge us with mercy. And he says, you need to be merciful, now, blessed are those who are merciful. We go back earlier in this passage, and we'll see that. Blessed are those who show mercy. And here he goes through, and he tells us how to show mercy in greater detail. Before we dig, I want to make one thing really clear, because I think you can read this passage here that we're going to be diving into, starting with verse 38, and you can begin to say, oh, Jesus is arguing for pacifism, where you just kind of sit back and let things happen to you, and you don't ever fight back. I don't think that's what he's saying here. In fact, I think we need to make it clear that justice is not being called into question in this passage. Okay? And it's really clear when you go back in the Old Testament. Now, certainly, the Old Testament is dealing with a nation, a whole nation, the nation of Israel, and God gives them certain laws that they need to uphold. And and people who disobey those laws, there's some punishment, there's consequences to it. Now, we live in a Christian faith, the church. And that Christian faith, the church, can live in any nation. Now, some maybe it has to be underground. Some it lives with freedom. But nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in the Scripture, does it say that the the church is supposed to go out and reform the nation. It just tells us that we're to live in that nation and be the light in that nation and help people live in it. That was certainly the case for the early church. They lived under the Roman government. But there was no challenge in there to go reform the Roman government. Now, as time went by, the church became powerful enough that there was, it, it did filter into some forms of government. And then, of course, mankind gets in there and messes it up once again. And you tend to see that repeated over and over in history. But here, the nation of Israel, God gives them specific laws. And this is one of them, Leviticus 24. It says this, verse 17, if a man kills anyone, he must be put to death. Okay, God believed and wrote capital punishment there. Verse 18, he says, Whoever kills an animal is to make restitution for it, life for life. If any man inflicts a permanent injury on his neighbor, whatever he has done is to be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he inflicted on the person, the same is to be inflicted on him. Now Jesus picks up on the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and he shares it in the passage we're going to be looking at in Matthew chapter 5. So I wanted to give you the original context and let you know where we first see it. Well, not only do we see it here, when somebody goes out and, and kills somebody, then they ought to be killed, or somebody steals, and so forth, and there's an eye for eye, tooth for tooth type of an idea. But he also brings it to those who falsely accuse people. In Deuteronomy 19, he says, you must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. Now, this is important right here. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Okay? If a malicious witness comes forward and accuses someone of a crime, then both the accuser and accused must appear before the Lord by coming to the priest and judges in office at that time. The judge must investigate the case thoroughly. If the accuser has brought false charges against his fellow Israelite, you must impose the accuser with the sentence he intended for the other person. In this way, you will purge such evil from among you. So if an accuser comes up and he says, hey, I saw such and such person, and they were stealing from this family over here, and then they investigate. First of all, there's no punishment carried out yet. There's an investigation that goes on. They go before the judges, and then they have to decide whether or not this accusation is true. If they investigate and they find out that the accuser lied about it, then the accuser is going to have the penalty. He goes on, verse 20, then the rest of the people will hear about it and be afraid to do such evil thing. He then says this, you must show no pity for the guilty. Your rule should be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Okay, there it is again in that context. The important part there, not only is that the accuser gets blamed, but that there was a process and it wasn't just a person could say, hey, that person stole something, so you know what? We need to steal something from them. There had to be a witness and there had to be judges and there had to be people that would investigate. Now that's important because when we go into the context and the text today, I think we need to understand that there was a time when the, the, the Pharisees were taking this eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and they were saying, hey, you go ahead as a personal, individual being and you carry out that judgment on other people. If someone slaps you, then you slap them back. If someone hurts you, you hurt them back, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. And Jesus challenges us and says, no, there is an order and a process, and we need to follow that order and a process, and not just skip over and take the punishment into our own hands. Remember, Jesus said this very clearly, Matthew 5, 17, do not think I came to abolish the law. He's not getting rid of the Old Testament. He's not getting rid of the prophets. Instead, he came to, to, uh, to fulfill it, to help us understand it, and read it with clarity. So here we are, Matthew 5, 38. Let's pray as we get into it. Father, as we think about these words and we think about your truth, we want to understand it. We're going to go through this passage. Obviously, we've already gone through some, some other scripture, and Lord, we want it to, to bring light to us and help us understand what your word has to say. Lord, through it, may we bring honor and glory to you. This is our form of worship. We've sung songs. We've given you praise. We've, we've spent some time in prayer, Lord, now we we come to you in worship before your word, and we want to live by what you have to say in obedience, because we love you, and you have demonstrated to us your love already through the death, burial, and resurrection. We give you all praise and glory in Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus does another, you've heard it said, but I tell you. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Now, I grew up thinking that this was more of like a a fist fight, like somebody comes up and punches you in the face, you're just supposed to be like, oh, here, punch me on this side too, you know, type of thing. But that's actually not what he's saying. What he's saying is if somebody comes up and and kind of backhands you, just says, you know, you idiot, and just hits you in the face type of thing, then it's like, fine, if you're going to insult me, go ahead and smack me on the other side. It's not like a physical, uh, enormous amount of physical pain here. He's just kind of a slap on the cheek. He says if someone slaps you and insults you, go ahead and and turn your cheek and let them insult you again. Now that, right away, people have been going, I don't like what Jesus is saying. In fact, you might be saying, I don't really like what Jesus is saying. Goes on, verse 40, he says, As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, so here they bring you to court, and they want to take away your shirt, which was a tunic. It would have been the the cheap undergarment, probably, you know, long sleeve, maybe down, down to your knees, just a one piece. The poor people, that may have been all that they had. If you were wealthier, you would have had that undergarment, and you would have had a cloak, or a coat that was going over it. So he says, if somebody comes and sues you and takes away your possession, your shirt, well, let them have your coat as well. Again, people are like, I don't really like where Jesus is going with this. Right? And then he goes on, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. So the Romans worked it into their law, a system where they could go out and they could force non Roman citizens to carry their luggage for them. It was a pretty good deal. They could just be walking down the road and they're like, "Hey, there's a non-Roman citizen." Now most of the Jews, not all we know Paul was a Roman citizen, but most of the Jews were not Roman citizens. And so typically the Jews got picked on, like, "Hey, they're a Jew. Come over here and carry my luggage, and if you don't, you'll pay a fine or go to jail or something like that. So they'd be, oh. and I'll go oh, have to carry this luggage for these people, and you can just imagine, right, what that would be like. What if we did that today? You can imagine what that would be like. Well, what kind of Facebook post do we read about for that? If anyone forces you to go to mile, he says, go two miles instead. You're done with the 2,080 feet. Go another 5,280 feet. Go that extra mile. Now, I have that word force highlighted there, and there's a reason for that. The Greek word that's used here. Is only used in two different or two scenarios throughout the New Testament. And only twice when it's used in the New Testament, it's used in the Gospel. So it's used once here, and then Matthew and Mark use it both to describe another scenario. Now I want to go to that passage in Matthew, but as we do, I think it's important for us to to back up and get the whole context. And I think as we do, as we look at the whole context, you're going to start to see some connection between what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 5 and what took place several years later. Matthew 27, verse 28, speaking about Jesus, it says they stripped him, took off his, uh, his tunic, his shirt, his cloak, everything, stripped him down naked. Then they dressed him in a, in a scarlet robe to, to make fun of him, because that's what a king would have wore. They twisted together a crown of thorns, and then they put it on his head and placed a staff in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him. So they did all that just so they could insult him, backhand him, slap him, except for it was a lot worse than that. Then they spat on him, because that wasn't enough. Then they took the staff back out of his hand, and then they hit him on the head, not once, but it says they kept hitting him on the crown of thorns on his head. Okay, so took his cloak, they insulted him. After they mocked him, they stripped him once again of that robe, and then they put his own clothes on him. And if you continue to read the story, when he died on the cross, they took again the clothes that he had on, and then they divided it up among them. So once again, he was hanging naked on the cross. It says, and then they led him away to crucify him. And as they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon, and they forced him. There's that word. Okay, they forced a non-Roman citizen to carry the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus had already carried it to some extent. He had carried it, you know, until he couldn't carry it anymore, and he was falling. And he just didn't have the strength anymore. So then, instead of the Roman soldiers carrying the cross, we'll look for a non-Roman citizen to carry the cross for Jesus. And then he carried it. And they hung him on the cross, and from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, That is my God, my God, why have you first abandoned me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a stick and offered him a drink. But the rest said, Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Now, let's go back to Matthew 5. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too, and then give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow from you. From the time Adam and Eve sinned, uh, there's, there's been this separation between man and God, and God and man has always wanted to, to somehow get back into a right relationship, and so Through works or through different types of things in the Old Testament, you see man trying to to get back there, but eventually something else had to happen, and that was Jesus Christ coming to this world. So as man cried out, God, we want to have a relationship with you, or at least a few, God answers it and says, well, this is how you have it. And as God the Father says, I want to have a relationship with my creation, well, this is how you have it. Jesus comes and gives himself to us. Give to the one who asks. And when we go and we ask for our relationship with God the Father to be restored, it is possible for that to happen through the gift of Jesus Christ. And that's it. That's the only way it's possible, is through that gift of Jesus Christ. I think it's an interesting connection there. You can make a lot about the idea of this forcing you to go one mile. Jesus goes up the hill, and, and he's forced to carry his own cross until he can't take it anymore. And then Simon the Cyrene, he carries the cross. That's much like Jesus comes, and he shares the gospel and the good news. And he comes, and, and he, he dies for us. He, he rises from the dead. He ascends up into heaven, and then he hands it over to you and I, the church. And then he says, here, take my cross. Take my message Take the gospel and carry it on. Go the extra mile with it. Don't stop. Keep going. And give to anyone who asks. Fortunately, we don't have to go to the cross. He did it for us. So we take that message and we give it to other people. We give them the hope. We do that by following Christ and what he's asked us to do. So 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 is a great passage that reminds us that Paul understood he is to imitate Christ. And so he tells other people, imitate that same idea. If I'm out there imitating Christ, you ought to be out there imitating Christ. Imitate me, for I imitate him. We've got to be having that same type of thing going on here at our church. And today, we ought got to be imitating Christ. And as people are coming into the faith, they're imitating Christ too. And we have examples, human examples, that are not perfect in front of us, but they are showing us what it looks like to imitate Christ and live out the faith. If Jesus showed mercy and he tells us, in the Beatitudes, and he tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that we ought to show mercy, then we probably ought to, what, show mercy? So what have we learned about showing mercy from this? I think the first thing is we've learned not to repay an insult with an insult. Now, being someone who pastors a church and being someone who gets up and, and speaks and preaches, I've, I've had my share of insults over the year. Years, I should say, not just one year. And some of them are kind of funny, right? Some of them I actually get a chuckle out of. Like, there's this one I remember, and this guy, he got caught up in a, in a church that was really about just being positive and didn't want anything negative, like kind of over-the-top, Crystal Cathedral type, like everything's positive type of thing. And I remember in a service we had a guy come and share about a, a, a man who was on the mission field and he was he was his health was struggling and eventually he had passed and so the guy wanted us to pray for the family. I'm like well, that's great. Well, it was like the Sunday before Christmas, and this guy who had been attending this very positive church, he comes and he says, oh, "We cannot do that." And he actually started saying, "This was this was terrible that we would share something so negative in church before Christmas." And I kind of chuckled, and I wanted to say a lot of things about him as a person, like, you idiot, but I didn't, you know, because we're told not to repay an insult with an insult and listen and try to coach people through it, try to disciple people through and and show what Scripture has to say. Then there's the more difficult ones, the people you pour into. And I sat down, and some of you know this. I think I've shared it before, but I had a guy tell me one time in in a way, he was trying to insult me and say, hey, when when you speak, when you preach, I just want you to know that my fifth grader understands what you say. And he didn't think that was a good thing. He wanted me to use superfluous words, you know, and vocabulary and that sort of thing. And And so he was trying to insult, and I just wanted to say, you know, your feeble attempt to participate in any intelligent conversation only goes to exaggerate your already pathetic lack of mental ability. (laughs) But I didn't. I didn't. I wish those were my words. That was actually Mark Lowry's words, if you're familiar with him. But for some reason, when I was a kid, I memorized that, thinking that one day I would use it. And I never have. But, well, at least until now, with you guys. But God tells us not to insults, right? Don't repay an in insult with an insult. That can be tough at times. I think you guys know what I mean there. People are more important than possessions. That's another thing you learn in this. He talks about the, the coat, the cloak being taken. One of the saddest things I, I've seen in families is when mom and dad pass and there's an inheritance. And brothers and sisters... Fight over that inheritance. And they hire lawyers and they get mad at each other and they stop talking to each other. And, And sometimes it's over like just a few thousand dollars. But they'll end their relationships as brothers and sisters because of an inheritance of possessions. And we know it happens a lot today. People fight. Over possessions, and we're told here very clearly hey, if, if someone is gonna come and they demand this and they sue you for it, just, just fine, give it up. It's not worth it. Now, I understand there might be a little difference between, you know, um, $20 and a little difference between, you know, several thousand dollars, and, 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 and he doesn't say you don't go to court and try to find a good solution, but if it's ridiculous, just give it up. Just give it up. Serving others is tough, but it's worth it. So yesterday we had Foster Family Relief Day, and there's foster families that come and drop off kids, and so we had a group of people here that watched, and and I've been in those scenarios where, you know, there's a a child that's dropped off, and you don't know what you're going to get, right? Never met them before, and you don't know if they're going to be nice and quiet and laid back, and or if they're going to be running around crazy. In like fact, the first time we ever did Foster Family Relief, I think there are some people that are like, I don't think I'm going to do this again. <laughs> right? Because just kids run all over, and we had this one that was like an escape artist, and we actually had to literally follow her around everywhere, and one time she got out, and she was up at the door, like going outside. I was like, no, oh, you know, running after her. And it's tough, and, and you get done at the end, and you're like, that's, that's a lot of work, and it's just three hours, Serving can be tough. During the summers, we do 10 weeks now. We started off thinking it was gonna be five weeks. Now we do 10 weeks of movie nights. And those are late on Friday night. But we do that because we care about the community and we have an opportunity to, to reach out and show them we care about them. We have opportunity to um, serve the school here in a little while. We have a couple different things that are going on this year. You know, that's ways that we as a church can serve, but then we have individuals that we serve. Maybe there's people God has brought into your life that you're going to serve, and it's tough and it's difficult. And sometimes people never say thank you. And sometimes you don't see the growth right in front of your eyes. But serving is still something we ought to do. And when somebody comes and demands that we go a mile, the hardest thing to do is say, yes, I'll go that mile and I'll go even further. Because oftentimes when somebody demands to be served, we kind of throw up our hands and go, no way. So Jesus really hits us hard there, doesn't he? If someone comes and says, take me a mile, I'll go with you too. It's tough. Giving changes lives. Giving of our resources, giving of our our time, our energy. In fact, today people would rather give resources, give money, I think, than their time. But I think we're called to, to really give so that we can change people's lives. And again, it kind of goes back to number three there. You may not see the change, but it doesn't mean it's not happening. This, this summer, I got to go um, to a kid that was in well, the last church I was at and leading, who's in youth group, and he asked me to come and do, um, do their wedding. And so I got to share with them, you know, what I know about. Marriage and go through some premarital counseling and walk through him with that. He's the kind of kid I I didn't know if I'd ever hear from again. But somehow there was an impact made there, and he wants to continue that relationship. You never know when when you're going to make an impact on someone's life. You just care for people, you give, you love on people. Giving changes lives. So people are selfish, selfish is ugly. But mercy is beautiful. And practicing mercy helps people see who Christ is. It can be difficult. It's tough. It's not easy. People insult you. It's not easy to, to let it go. People take something from you. It's not easy to let it go. When people demand you serve them, it's not easy to follow through on that. And to give, or maybe you, you have a, a little critical heart in there that's like, well, I don't know if I should give because last time I gave, you know, I don't know where it went. I don't know how to challenge or change them or anything. But to give and be merciful, that's what Jesus does. He does it for us all the time. Doesn't he? And So when you think about this question, it kind of haunts me a little bit, but just think about this. Where would you be today if Jesus chose not to show us mercy? Where would I be? I'm going to make it personal. Where would I be today if Jesus chose not to show me mercy? It's kind of a scary answer. Where would I be today if Jesus didn't show me mercy yesterday? Not just over my life, but just yesterday. I mean, a holy God who can't you know, participate in any kind of sin, as soon as we do something wrong, we should probably be hit with lightning. We often you know, kind of kid about that. Oh, if I go out and do that, lightning's going to strike me down. That's really what should happen. But because God is merciful, which, by the way, mercy is withholding God's wrath from us, Because he withholds his wrath from us, he doesn't hit us with lightning. He doesn't kill us. Instead, he lets us stay in a relationship with him. It's crazy. Where would I be today if Jesus chose not to show me mercy? In what area of mercy, then, is God stretching you to grow, and how could it impact others? Now, this is something you can write down on your response card if you'd like. You could share that response card with us. We'll pray with you on that. I know there's some things in my life. Boy, insults, that's hard to take. Serving people that I feel like don't really show much gratitude, that's hard to do. In fact, I started looking through the list, I'm like, okay, I need to be stretched in all those areas. I don't know really like a pinpoint, just one. God's stretching me to grow. Yeah, I can go through my day and go, oh, hey, look at all the ways I've served. Look at all the ways I've I've already been stretched in mercy, but I have not even come close. I have not come to the distance. I have not grown as much as Christ. His example of mercy led him to the cross. I'm nowhere near that. So I need to stretch and grow to keep showing mercy. Well, think about those things. And we're going to give you some time, again, to reflect here. Song's going to be played. You can just pray, you and God, your time. If you want to write down on a response card, throw that in the offering plate. I will pray with you this week. Reach out to you. Maybe ask you how it's going. Encourage you. I love to get that kind of stuff. I love to get that kind of feedback. Because then I can see firsthand, again, what God's doing in your life. How he's challenging you. I come up here and try to share with you how he's challenging me. So I'd love to hear back from you and see how he's challenging you. So think about those things as, uh, as we listen to this.